Hello, welcome to another episode of Freaking Out About Opening Day with Randy Freaking, the podcast about the history and celebrations of Cincinnati's most revered non-religious holiday. This episode is called From the Roaring Twenties Through World War II, and we will discuss opening day over a period of 25 years from 1920 to 1945. And it was indeed a wild ride. Let's start with 1920, which marked Finley Market's first appearance. On the eve of this opening day, snow was beginning to melt after covering the entire field a day earlier. A record crowd had been anticipated to honor the 1919 world champions. All the reserve seats had been sold months earlier, but the recent snow and cold weather kept some fans at home. The conditions did not prevent the attendance of one noteworthy fan, John D. Rockefeller, then the richest man in the world. After Reds pitcher Duth Ruther delivered the first pitch, the ball was taken out of play, signed by Rockefeller, and presented to Reds president Gary Herman. The most significant happening on April 14 was the birth of a new Reuters group based at Finley Market. Founded in 1852, Finley Market is a public market in Cincinnati's Over the Rhine neighborhood, now simply known as OTR. While no mention of the Finley Market Reuters is made in Cincinnati newspapers until 1922, the organizers conducted their first march to the ballpark on April 14, 1920. This first parade consisted of one band, one horse-drawn wagon, and the merchants of the market marching to Crosley Field. Cincinnati newspapers reporting on the 1925 opener five years later noted that the group had celebrated the opener for, quote, many years, unquote. Little did the organizers anticipate that the group would mark its 100th parade in 2019. Suffice it to say that 1920 was a start of an opening day tradition in Cincinnati that is second to none. Let's move to 1921, which we call the passing of the father of opening day. Two weeks before the opener on April 13, Frank Bancroft passed away. Bancroft surely would have liked to see the fruits of his nearly 30 years promoting opening day when a record-setting crowd of 29,963 packed the ballpark. Bancroft was missed by many fans, as reported by the Enquirer. Quote, many fans spoke with regret of the absence of Frank Bancroft, who had been at every previous opening game here for 29 years. His genial countenance was sadly missed by the regulars, and how Banny would have delighted in handling that big crowd, unquote. The opener was short on Hoopla, which would have disappointed Bancroft, but he would have delighted in the appearance of Doc Howard's cabaret. Howard's group featured 15 singers who mixed harmony, jazz, and melody to entertain the fans along with Weber's band. The big crowd was partly the result of a large delegation of fans that had arrived on a big river steamer. 
The steamer stopped at all the major towns on the Ohio River, enabling more than 600 rooters to attend the game from cities such as Huntington, West Virginia, and Portsmouth, Ohio. New Ohio Governor Harry L. Davis also attended and was seen keeping his own scorecard and, quote, watching every play from the standpoint of an expert, unquote. Now, 1922, we call two Hall of Famers. The April 22 opener featured two pitchers, Epa Rixey of the Reds and Grover Cleveland Alexander of the Cubs, both of whom would go on to become Hall of Fame inductees. On this day, Alexander outdueled Rixey. Now, I will note that only one other time in Reds history would two future Hall of Fame pitchers face each other in the opener, that being Tom Seaver and Steve Carlton in 1981. All of the reserve seats in the grandstand and pavilions were again sold months in advance. After the Rooters' scarce showing a year earlier, they were back in force in 1922. The Merrymakers were equipped with horns and rattles for their procession, while clown bands, other bands, and solo musicians also marched to the ballpark. 5,000 cars were parked on nearby streets. The Finley Markets rooters paraded through downtown until they arrived at the ballpark and presented an immense floral horseshoe for good luck to Reds manager Pat Moran. The rooters were joined by members of the Rotary Club, who arrived at an outfield entrance in 50 decorated automobiles. Members of the club circled the field before serenading the manager. The mammoth crowd of 27,095 was accommodated with temporary bleachers erected in left field that extended to the scoreboard in center field. Ropes were stretched in front of the bleachers in right field to accommodate the overflow crowd. Fans saw a playing field that was in perfect condition thanks to field superintendent Matty Schwab. Reported the Enquirer, quote, The athletes, clad in white or gray, tore madly over its brilliant surface, unquote. 1923, we call the first opener over 30,000. The Cincinnati Commercial Tribune, the city's other daily newspaper from 1896 until 1930, reported that April 17, quote, was Christmas, 4th of July, Yom Kippur, and St. Patrick's Day rolled into one and with an added flavor only sensed on Cincinnati's Day of Days, the baseball getaway, unquote. As it happened, the temperature more closely approximated Christmas weather than what would typically be enjoyed on the 4th of July. Interest in this game was so high that the entire grandstand had been sold out four days before Thanksgiving, and only 6,000 bleacher seats remained for sale on the day of the game at a cost of 50 cents. To accommodate early arrivers, The gates were thrown open 90 minutes earlier than usual 
And by 11 o'clock a.m., 12,000 patrons had already arrived for the 3 p.m. game, bundled in overcoats and furs, and hundreds more poured in every few minutes. It was the largest crowd in Reds opening day history at 30,338. The fans sat in seats shining with new paint and received a souvenir poem penned by pioneering sports writer Ren Malford, who was known for coining the phrase, quote, baseball fan, unquote. 25 Boy Scouts passed out the poetic souvenir on behalf of the community chest. Flowers were presented to the members of both teams. 1924, WLW arrives. On the eve of the April 15 opener, an apparatus was installed on top of the grandstand and a special wire was strung from Redland Field to the broadcast facilities of radio stations WLW and WSAI. The next day, announcer Eugene Middendorf provided a play-by-play simulcast on both stations, broadcasting from the same roof where hundreds of fans were perched. It was the first Reds game broadcast by radio. Thousands of baseball fans in Ohio, Kentucky, West Virginia, and Indiana tuned in. Northern Ohio cities reported that the cheering of the rooftop fans was so loud at times that the voice of the announcer could not be heard. Since this reaction was actually anticipated, Middendorf often reported descriptions of exciting plays. Finley Markets Parade, which by now had become a well-entrenched tradition that would continue, eclipsed all former parades in originality. Each of the 400 members of the association, with flowers in their coat, wore a large white hat and carried a cane when they entered the ballpark through a special entrance. They marched around the field before presenting a trophy to manager Moran that was a bouquet of flowers in the form of an immense baseball resting on two baseball bats. The arrangement was so large that it had to be hoisted on the shoulders of four men after the presentation, who then paraded around the field to the accompaniment of the band. 1925, Acute Congestion What bothered fans at the 1925 opener was the acute congestion that clogged the streets around Redland Field as cars of every make and model came from nearby towns, hilltop suburbs, and from across the river. The Cincinnati Commercial Tribune reported that working-class people from the long line of streetcars contributed to the congestion by knocking people down if necessary to secure a ticket. Those lucky enough to attend the game on baseball's gala day joined in the celebration of the 50th season of the National League. The occasion was marked with a blue flag that said National Jubilee in gold letters. 
The game only took one hour and 26 minutes, the third shortest in history, and there was not as much wild cheering as in the past after the Reds took a comfortable lead in the first inning. The Reds beat the Cardinals 4 to nothing before nearly 32,000 fans on a very sunny afternoon. 1926, we call this a new look. Despite Gary Herman's disdain for oratory during pregame ceremonies, Herman did like to have a surprise or two for the fans in addition to the customary events. In 1926, he sprang a new stunt by introducing navy blue caps for the players with a red C stitched in front. He did this because the traditional white caps had typically become dirty after just a few games, and so Herman decided to discard them in favor of the darker color. The new look was an immediate hit. The new blue lids turned out to be lucky hats, as the Reds once again came from behind in the opener for a dramatic 7-6 win in 10 innings. The crowd of over 32,000 was ecstatic, according to the Enquirer. The cheering fans included two 8th graders who had huddled beside a bonfire from 10.30 p.m. the previous night until the ticket window opened. 1927. Expansion. After record season attendance in 1926 of 672,000 fans, Redland Field underwent a nearly 20% expansion of the park's capacity. By opening day 1927, seating capacity had risen to 26,000, including 5,000 field-level box seats on a wooden floor in front of the existing boxes behind home plate. To accommodate the additional seats, home plate was moved out 20 feet and turned slightly. Despite the expansion of the park, more than 8,000 of the nearly 35,000 fans on opening day did not have seats, so they stood throughout the game. The team also added more billboards atop the signs already adorning the left field wall, making this billboard monster, as it was called, 30 feet high. The Cincinnati Street Railway added extra cars to carry the anticipated record crowd, knowing fans would be eager to see the renovated ballpark. Weber's famous fair weather band caused the clouds to blow away, and the afternoon was perfect for the pastime. WLW recognized the fans' surging interest in the opening game and came on the air a full half hour before the first ball was pitched. The station's owner and future owner of the team, radio magnate Powell Crosley Jr., delighted listeners at home by interviewing several of the leading players and the two teams' managers before the game. Another first for Cincinnati. 1928, we call, Where is Cy Young? When Gary Herman stepped down as president of the Reds after the 1927 season, citing poor health and deafness, new owner C.J. Macdiamid 
grabbed the reins. He made an immediate splash, announcing that the retired star and future Hall of Famer, Cy Young, would toss out the first ball. Young would be the first former baseball great to be given this honor. The new owner also invited several dignitaries, including the current and past governors of Ohio, Cincinnati Mayor Murray Seasongood, and the Major League Baseball Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. The dignitaries' boxes were decorated with flags and bunting. Herman attended his first game as a fan in 25 years. WLW arranged to place microphones in both dugouts, and members of both teams tried their hands at broadcasting during batting practice. After the band finished its concert, the crowd waited eagerly for the arrival of Cy Young. Everybody wanted to see the greatest pitcher of all time, who was now a farmer in eastern Ohio. His motorcade from Columbus encountered heavy traffic around the ballpark, and, like many others that day, he arrived late. The game was delayed for four minutes with the hope that Young would arrive soon, but the real first pitch of the game by Dolph Luke was delivered just as Young entered the park. He was a moment too late. 1929, the expansion of Reds on Radio. The Reds, WLW, and little-known station WFBE warmed the hearts of Cincinnati fans by announcing that opening day would no longer be the only game broadcast by the station. In addition to hearing play-by-play for the opening game, fans would be able to tune in to hear 40 of the Reds' home games that season. WLW's Bob Burdett and Harry Hartman on WFBE became the first regular announcers to serve as the voices of the Reds. The chance to listen to the game from home helps explain why the attendance for the April 16 opener was the smallest since 1919 at just over 24,000. Of course, the 42-degree temperature also kept pneumonia-fearing patrons away from the park. The fans who did attend the game were treated to the customary pregame show, but a new twist was initiated by the Finley Market Rooters during their parade inside the park. The organization had chosen Toby, a bricklayer from Oxford, Ohio, to lead the parade and throw out 18 baseballs to fans in the bleachers. Ohio Governor Myers returned to a tradition from the 1890s by throwing the first pitch to the umpire, who picked up the ball as it rolled gently toward the plate. But for the fact that it was opening day, the game likely would have been postponed because of the miserable weather conditions. The game was played in an hour and 17 minutes, tied for the shortest opener in history. 1930, we call Choice Seats Sold for Christmas. Despite ripples of a recession following the stock market crash of 1929, 
Mayor Russell Wilson proclaimed the return of spring in a letter published in the Enquirer. Quote, The opening of the baseball season resembles Christmas in that it comes but once a year. Of course, the flowers that bloom in the spring herald the vernal season and other manifestations of nature declare the glories of April. But to the average American, the opening of the baseball season is a necessary confirmation of the advent of spring. Sports writer Jack Ryder followed the mayor's lead with the Christmas theme and reported that reserve seats, quote, are as scarce as were bones in Mother Hubbard's famed cupboard, unquote, because, quote, Christmas usually finds all the choice seats gone, unquote. Included in the crowd of 30,112 were thousands of women, dubbed fanettes, who now regularly attended games. Just before the opener, the Reds announced that there would be 14 ladies' days during the upcoming season, at which they would be welcomed as guests of the team free of charge. 1931, we call simple ceremonies. Construction of Union Terminal, one of the last great rail stations built in America, began in 1931. It was situated just blocks from Redland Field and provided thousands of jobs to Cincinnatians. This caused optimism about the economy. However, the Great Depression was beginning to take hold, and not surprisingly, it was a subdued opening day. Of course, a concert was held before the game, but it was followed by one of the most unusual first pitch ceremonies in history. Cincinnati Mayor Russell proceeded to the pitcher's mound, and to the crowd's surprise, there were two catchers at home plate, City Manager Clarence Dykstra and Ohio Governor George White. Russell then threw two first pitches, and both were exact strikes down the heart of the plate. Despite the simpler ceremonies, the game still attracted nearly 30,000 fans. 1932 we call trading places. Shrugging off increasingly difficult economic times, Reds fans were in the parting mood once again on April 12. Four weeks before the opener, the Reds and Brooklyn Dodgers pulled off a blockbuster trade with the Reds receiving three players, including Ernie Lombardi. Lombardi would go on to become one of the greatest catchers in Reds history. Not finished, club president Weil negotiated for over 24 hours and announced another big trade on the eve of the opener. The Reds acquired the defending National League batting king, Chick Hafey, from the Cardinals for two players and an undisclosed amount of cash. Sports writer Ryder reported that, quote, the full seating capacity of the park was jammed to the limit with a double line of standees in right field, unquote. The eventual crowd of nearly 26,000 arrived early despite thermometers hovering around the freezing point. The loyal fans were not disappointed. 
Weil had arranged for a spirited pregame demonstration. The headliners included the Lower Cincinnati Businessmen's Association, marching with a band, followed by the famed drum corps of the Bentley Post of the American Legion. The groups were said to have played several stirring tunes in front of the grandstand before marching off the field to great applause. The game that followed was one of the most thrilling in Reds history as the team scored four runs in the bottom of the ninth inning to overcome a 4-1 to deficit to win their first opener since 1928. We move to 1933 and we call this one Beer Here. Since fans had so little to cheer about, with the economy going sour, the headline on the sports page urged readers to show up in force proclaiming, quote, come on, let's go out to the old ballpark, unquote. Sports writers wanted to counter pessimists who were predicting such a heavy slump in attendance at various ballparks that it would, quote, make the magnates sorry that they ever started the season, unquote. At least for one day, the skeptics were proven wrong. Opening day was celebrated as a major civic event, as always. With schools closed for the day, students did not have to come up with phony excuses for their absences, prompting the Enquirer to observe that, quote, the fatality rate among grandmothers was much less than usual, unquote. Moreover, adults had their own reasons to celebrate the holiday. On March 21, Congress had signed the Cullen-Harrison Act, which permitted the sale of beer and wine with low alcohol content. While the full repeal of Prohibition would not occur until December 1933, fans were elated that they could buy beer at the park for the first time in 13 years. With school out and beer in, 25,305 patrons enjoyed themselves on a sunny day despite a loss to the Pirates. The Enquirer staff opined that the game dragged a bit as it crossed the two-hour limit, quote, which is supposed to be the absolute Boundary for legitimate contests, unquote. Uh, compare that to today's three and four hour opening day events. 1934. We call this a new name, Crosley Field. After owner Sidney Weil began to veer toward bankruptcy, and defaulted on loans secured by his stock in the club in late 1933, a local bank known as the Central Trust Company took control of the Reds. Two months before the opener on April 17, Powell Crosley Jr. organized a syndicate to purchase the team, and on the eve of the opener, the club's directors decided to rename the field Crosley Field, which remained the name of the ballpark until it was torn down after the Reds moved the Riverfront Stadium in 1970. 
The nearly 31,000 fans who entered the ballpark on opening day saw that previously gray seats had been painted green and orange. They also marveled at a rebuilt scoreboard and noticed that ads had been removed from the outfield walls. Crosley believed that a plain green background for hitters would increase offense. The only advertising left in the outfield were two giant Crosley radio images on each side of the scoreboard with the dial set for WLW. Even though Reds games were broadcast on rival stations WSAI and WKRC, Temporary stands were added in left field for the opener, and the ropes were again deep in right field to accommodate the overflow crowd. The Reds players were adorned in new uniforms with a touch of blue on the sleeves and stockings. The pregame festivities included a new twist, the McTavern Bowlers from Bellevue, Kentucky, who staged a burlesque act. Flowers and other gifts were presented to the Reds and Reds general manager Larry McPhail, manager Bob O'Farrell, and team captain Jim Bottomley, who received a suitcase. The newspaper speculated, quote, maybe they think some of these boys are going somewhere this summer and possibly they are, unquote. Now fans listening at home that day were introduced to the voice of legendary baseball broadcaster Red Barber, who at that time was beginning his rookie season as a play-by-play announcer. Interestingly, before opening day 1934, Red Barber had never called play-by-play of a Major League Baseball game. 1935, we call... Don't steal our tradition. Horror of horrors. The National League schedule makers decided that the Reds' monopoly on opening day had lasted long enough. The league released a preliminary schedule for 1935 showing the Reds beginning the season in Pittsburgh rather than Cincinnati. Pittsburgh had long favored opening on the road in the belief that better weather could be expected at home a little bit later in the spring. However, a new pirate ownership group decided that 41 years without an opener at home was long enough, and the owners petitioned the league for the opportunity to host a real opening day of their own. Volatile general manager McPhail of the Reds protested immediately. He argued to the league that it was a matter of simple economics. The country was in the middle of the Great Depression, and the opener in Cincinnati was a guaranteed sellout, so both teams would benefit from their share of the gate receipts. Besides that, the Reds were financially strapped. Sports writer Tom Swope of the preeminent sports publication at the time, The Sporting News, made what is thought to be the first claim that the Reds deserved to host the opener because Cincinnati was a city where professional baseball was born. McPhail's challenge proved to be successful as the league relented by proposing a compromise. Yes, 
Cincinnati would be granted the privilege of hosting the first game, but they would have to travel the next day to Pittsburgh. Thankfully, Crosley and McPhail had ensured that the tradition would continue and we should still thank them today. The 1888 away game in Kansas City remains as the only scheduled opener for the Reds outside of Cincinnati. 1936. Unsold tickets scooped up quickly. Like many business enterprises during the Depression, the Reds were struggling to make ends meet. With the economy still in decline, 9,000 tickets remained available when opening day arrived. Fans could purchase tickets at three price points when the ticket office opened at 9.30 on game day. There were reserved seat tickets for a dollar and a quarter, general admission tickets for a dollar ten, and bleacher tickets for 60 cents. Enticed by the unusual 76-degree temperature, a cross-section of the city's population quickly scooped up the tickets. A sellout of 32,643 was assured. Promptly at 2 o'clock, Smitty's Symphonic Band led the annual Finley Market Parade as it entered Crosley Field, parading around the park before the Reds and Pirates took infield practice. Bombs were then dropped from the grandstand roof to signal the beginning of the official ceremonies, causing considerable excitement behind home plate as fiery fragments fluttered from the sky through the backstop screen. Women were again out in large numbers, and some Easter finery may have been scorched. Toby the bricklayer circled the bases to the amusement of fans, and the Reds and Pirates had a slugfest, with the Reds falling 8-6. to six. Future Reds broadcaster and Hall of Fame pitcher Wade Hoyt was the winning pitcher for the second year in a row, and he remains the only opposing hurler to win two consecutive openers in Cincinnati. 1937, we call Worst Flood Ever Retreats Just in Time. The April 20 opener was especially welcomed relief for a city recovering from the worst flood in Cincinnati history. The flood caused widespread suffering in a city already hurting from the Great Depression. The Ohio River crested at 79.9 feet in late January, completely submerging buildings in the neighborhood surrounding Crosley Field. At the high water mark, 21 feet of water stood at home plate and the lower grandstand was underwater. Groundskeeper Schwab's underground drainage system had betrayed him by allowing water to backflow into the park. The flood so overwhelmed the park that two Reds pitchers and Schwab hit a home run by rowing a boat over the center field wall. Newspapers around the country published pictures of the escapade. The river subsided over the ensuing weeks, 
and Schwab was able to repair the damage and prepare the field for opening day. As fans entered the ballpark, they noticed that beams supporting the grandstand had markers on them to indicate the height of the floodwaters. The flagpole had a line on it in center field pointing out that the water had been higher than the center field wall. For the first reported times, airplanes flew over Crosley Field carrying banners for stoves and beer. Now, opening day folklore in Cincinnati includes the myth that because the city has bragging rights to the first professional team in baseball, the team has always been accorded the privilege of having the first big league game of each season. But 1937 is one of many examples of why this is a myth. By April 20, Boston and Philadelphia had already played two games in the National League, and Philadelphia and Washington had played the American League opener the previous afternoon. There was no reported protest from the fans in Cincinnati at the time, confirming that the real tradition is simply that the Reds are the only team that is scheduled to open at home each year. 1938 we call strange numbering. An Enquirer editorial summarized the importance of the game to Cincinnatians under the title, Play Ball. Quote, The soldiers, the statesmen, the aviators, the economists, the politicians, the axe murderers, and all of the folk who customarily bathe in the public spotlight are escorted to back seats on the news rostrum today, so far as Cincinnati is concerned. For today is the opening game of the 1938 season at Crosley Field. To this baseball-minded community, it is an event much like the day the cherry blossoms bloom in Washington or the day the ice goes out at an Alaskan seaport, unquote. For reasons otherwise unexplained, the team announced that it was adopting new uniforms that would eliminate all players from numbers 1 to 34. No one really knows the reason. A sellout crowd entering Crosley Field learned that star catcher Ernie Lombardi was now number 35, and coach Ed Rausch was assigned the highest number, 67. Perhaps the Reds simply wanted to make sure that patrons had to purchase scorecards. In any event, it was the strangest numbering system ever used by a major league team, and the novel plan lasted only one year. Once the fans were settled, the traditional pregame ceremonies proceeded as expected, and the Cubs and the Reds paraded across the field with the band playing Happy Days Are Here Again after the umpire sternly ordered the removal of several thousand dollars worth of camera equipment that he referred to as, quote, high-priced flicker boxes, unquote, the season was on. 1939, another flood threatens the opener. Since they fans were anxiously awaiting the 1939 season, which was promoted as the 100th anniversary 
of the beginning of baseball. Mother Nature appeared not to be in a mood to cooperate just two years after the 1937 flood that had jeopardized opening day. This time, the pair waited until the weekend before the game to unleash torrential rains on the city. By the morning of April 17, the Ohio River had surged 20 feet to the flood stage of 52 feet. The river was expected to rise a steady quarter foot per hour, and fans, and no doubt Reds officials and players, were advised by forecasters that if the river surpassed 54 feet, the dugouts would begin to flood. At 56 feet, the outfielders must use pontoons. At 58 feet, the hottest pitcher will have water-cooled feet, according to the Enquirer. The headline that morning ominously guessed that the river, quote, may touch 58, unquote. Nature relented, however. The rain subsided before noon. Just a few inches of rain invaded the dugout, and the players and photographers made an improvised bridge from the playing field to the bench by laying boards over the water. Honoring his promise of the previous day, the ground superintendent somehow had the playing field in excellent condition after the infield had been wearing its canvas jacket, a tarpaulin, for three days. The outfield drains operated perfectly. By game time, the smallest attendance in almost a decade had streamed into the ballpark for the battle with Pittsburgh. The customary parades still took place, and flowers were presented to the managers of both teams by local politicians. Mayor James Garfield Stewart had the honor of presenting a bouquet to the Reds manager, proclaiming, quote, Because we love you and have confidence in you, we present you these flowers, unquote. After Stewart waved the American flag, and delivered a sizzling strike to Honus Wagner, one of five inaugural inductees into baseball's Hall of Fame just three years earlier, the sun miraculously broke through the threatening clouds and the season was on. 1940. Where is the championship flag? The Morning Enquirer said it all, quote, it's opening day for the National League champs of 1939, unquote. After the Reds' first World Series appearance in 20 years the previous fall, Cincinnati fans eagerly anticipated the raising of the 1939 National League pennant in center field on April 16. When the club announced they would delay that celebration until the following homestand, in order to boost attendance, of course, it served as the only disappointment of the day as the Reds won their first opener since 1932, beating the Cubs 2-1. The winning run scored in the bottom of the eighth inning. The early arriving fans were treated to a home run exhibition during batting practice, and they saluted the darling of red leg fans, Ernie Lombardi, forgiving him for his oft-criticized fielding gaffe known as the snooze 
in Game 4 of the 1939 World Series. Lombardi's error did not affect the outcome of the game, as the Yankees were already about to sweep the Reds when Lombardi missed a tag on Joe DiMaggio at home plate. The only other deviation from the traditional festivities of recent years was that the honor of the first pitch was bestowed upon Ohio Governor James Bricker instead of Mayor Stewart. Disdaining his top coat in the chilly breeze, the governor bounced the ball from his box seat alongside Cincinnati's dugout to fan favorite Lombardi. 1941. Championship rings amid winds of war. Cincinnati fans woke up on opening day 1941, anxiously awaiting the celebration of the Reds' first world championship since 1919. Their enthusiasm, however, was tempered by news of increasingly likely involvement of the United States in World War II. The dean of baseball, Connie Mack, predicted that, quote, folks will be wanting to go to ball games and relax, unquote. Lou Smith of the Enquirer advised readers to put their worries aside, quote, our town, rated the tops in all baseball, has gone completely mad. Let the rest of the world worry about wars, dictators, and revolutions. We have this little matter of our Reds to concern us, unquote. Indeed, preparations had been made for one of the largest opening day celebrations in the city's history. In 1940, the Reds had become the first team to ever win 100 games in light of the club's thrilling seven-game World Series victory over Detroit, including winning the final two games at Crosley Field, fan interest was at an all-time high. When the fans and partygoers entered the park, which was decorated in patriotic fashion with bunting and flags, they could not help but notice the new red, white, and blue sign along the left field line. It read, quote, Our country, in her intercourse with other nations, may she always be in the right, but our country, right or wrong, unquote. After the traditional parade around the field, Schmitty's band, the Finley Market Band, and a group of Boy Scouts circled the pitcher's mound to witness the presentation of World Series rings to the Reds by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis. The celebration then became more somber with the playing of the Star-Spangled Banner as the fans were well aware that ominous war clouds were looming throughout the land. 1942. World War II Takes Center Stage Worried citizens had wondered since the Pearl Harbor attack in December 1941 whether the baseball season should proceed at all. However, those concerns were diminished after President Roosevelt issued his famous green light letter to Commissioner Landis on January 15. Roosevelt advised that, quote, 
it would be best for the country to keep baseball going, unquote. And he suggested more night games be played so hardworking people could attend. In an editorial on opening day, the Enquirer agreed with DFDR, reasoning that baseball is an, quote, eminently worthwhile public entertainment, unquote. And while many of the game's most talented players were joining the armed forces, the time had not yet come for baseball to become one of the major war casualties. The editorial concluded rather ominously, however, quote, let's play ball while we can and forever, however long we can, unquote. Fans were greeted upon arrival on opening day with signs on the outfield wall that read, quote, remember Pearl Harbor, unquote, quote, for victory by defense bonds and stamps, unquote, quote, avoid waste, unquote, and, quote, keep fit, unquote. Foul balls could no longer be kept as souvenirs, and spectators were instructed to return them to be donated to the recreation departments of the armed forces. This policy remained in effect throughout the war. The wartime opening proved to be a solemn affair. The Finley Market Association decided to discard its tradition of presenting flowers to Reds officials and players, and instead, the head of the organization presented Reds manager Bill McKechnie with two war bonds after the band had, quote, whipped the crowd into the proper pregame spirit, unquote, with repeated renditions of Deep in the Heart of Texas, a popular song that had just been released. 1943, a Marine throws out the first pitch. On the morning of the opener, the Enquirer headline reassured readers, quote, yes, ball clubs are going to play today, unquote. Lou Smith informed readers that another war was starting in, quote, this second year of all-out war, unquote, a war for the championship of the National League. Fittingly, the Reds chose Private John Decker of the United States Marine Corps to deliver the first pitch on opening day. Decker became a war hero after engaging in hand-to-hand combat with Japanese soldiers during the Battle of the Solomons in August 1942. The successful encounter helped the United States gain a strategic and tactical advantage in the Navy's campaign in the Pacific. There were two radio broadcasts on opening day, as the Reds had not yet granted exclusive rights to a single station. And, Only 27,709 fans, the smallest crowd since 1935, were there to witness Decker's first pitch, which followed his appeal for the purchase of war bonds. In addition, rumors circulated that starting pitcher Johnny Vandermeer, the only pitcher in history to throw consecutive no-hitters, was possibly going to be inducted into the service by May 8th. Reds fans put those worries aside and watched Vandermeer pitch an 11-inning masterpiece, 
a one nothing win over the Cardinals. 1944, the arrival of Joe Nuxall. One of the most beloved players and broadcasters in Reds history is Joe Nuxall. Nuxall was little noticed by the fans when he signed a contract just days before the April 18 opener, but he was only 15 years old. Nuxall was a student at Wilson Junior High School in Hamilton, Ohio, but he was granted an excuse to attend opening day like many youngsters, but instead of occupying a bleacher seat, his seat was on the Reds' bench. He was recruited after 27 players had been called to serve in the armed forces, four other Reds had passed physical examinations and were waiting for their call, and three others were classified 1A, meaning they could be subject to early calls during the season. With the anticipated successful conclusion of the war, Major League Baseball expected a bump in attendance in 1944, and Cincinnati fans proved this assumption true. On opening day, the city fulfilled national predictions that the league's largest crowd for the opener would be at Crosley Field. The Reds had painted and decorated the stands for the third wartime season, and the customary ceremonies took place. When the teams paraded across the field to the cheers of 30,054 patrons and the strains of martial music, they did so, quote, without the rigidity of military carriage or the precision of military step with President Powell Crosley Jr., General Manager Warren C. Giles, and Deacon McKechnie striding jauntily at their head, unquote. Our final year today is 1945. We call this FDR Remembered. Five days before the April 17 opener, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt died suddenly of a cerebral hemorrhage at Warm Springs, Georgia, after 12 momentous years as president. The country went into mourning just as the Allies appeared on the verge of victory in Europe. The Reds made the point to acknowledge the passing of FDR as well as the sacrifices made by so many families in the war effort. Each person within the crowd of 30,069 could no doubt claim a loved one, friend, or neighbor who had been or was involved in the fighting overseas. The game was another sellout, with the last of several hundred reserved seats in right and left field corners that were called the jury box, sold shortly after the gates opened in the morning. As guests of the team, 550 uniformed service members were sprinkled throughout the stands. After 15 minutes of martial pageantry, a giant American flag was lowered to half-mast during the playing of the national anthem. The capacity crowd then stood reverently at attention for 30 seconds out of respect for the memory of FDR. 
Flags on top of the grandstand were also lowered to half-mast, where they would remain for the next 30 days. For Cincinnatians unable to secure a ticket, the voices of Lee Allen and Wade Hoyt called the action on radio station WCPO. Earlier in the year, the Reds had granted WCPO the exclusive rights to broadcast Reds games. Hoyt began with WKRC in 1942 and became one of the most revered color commentators in the team's history until he retired in 1965. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this summary of opening day from 1920 to 1945. This is Randy Freaking signing off and in the immortal words of Marty Brenneman, so long everybody. (laughs) 